All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. My name is Rick Mullen, and uh, I'm going to link heighten this thing a little bit so I can see a little better. I'm from over in Lawrence at Morningstar Church. Some of you might have remembered me here just a couple months ago. Uh, I was preaching. I can't remember what month it was, but um, that was a lot of fun. It was good to see uh, your faces again so soon. Often I don't get over here enough, Jonathan, to preach regularly, so this is pretty exciting to be able to do this twice in the last season of time. But um, um, I'm excited about this morning and what I believe God has for us, but I want to start with this meme I saw recently, and um, it made me, it was kind of fun. It says, I don't preach about repentance because I don't want people to think I'm negative. Woke Jesus. <laughs> now, it's a satirical, right? And satire is a great way to really expose or highlight wrong thinking and ideas. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Babylon Bee, but they do this all the time regularly, and they do a great job of it. Um, satire is a great way to do that, to bring out some faulty thinking. And I just wanted to open up this morning with that because you would not be hearing Jesus say that, right? That's not what he's not worried about what people think. He's not worried about, you know, stepping on toes or hurting people's feelings or things like that. He's going to speak the truth. and He's going to be who he is. And um, I, I think it helps prepare our mind this morning for what God wants to bring forth. And one of the things I was thinking about is that we th- one of our things is our thinking should conform to Scripture and not the other way around. And that meme kind of helps us with that. See, oftentimes we want to take our thinking and then make Scripture conform to the way we think. But that's not the way it goes. And we'll be looking at a unique incident in God's Word, a, neat, a unique section of Scripture this morning. And I think it's pretty cool that we're going through the book of Acts. And I think Jonathan left off last week chapters 3 and 4. And I'm moving into chapter 5. But when you do preaching like this, where you go through a, a, a book of the Bible, like expository preaching style, the text dictates what the conversation is going to be this morning. All right? And so at times you may think, well, let's just skip over that part of Scripture. Let's skip over that little section because it may make you feel a little uncomfortable or maybe uh, it may be hard to understand. But with this kind of thing where we're going through it, We don't get to do that. And so the text this morning dictates what we're going to talk about. And I believe it's something that if we'll lean into it, God is going to speak to us. And he's going to help us begin to see that our thoughts are going to be shaped by Scripture and not us shaping Scripture by our thoughts. But first, a little bit of recap. Because here we are, we've only been through the first four chapters of Acts. And it's already been a wild adventure ride, okay? I mean, Jesus skyrockets to heaven with his ascension. He's back on the throne. I mean, you've got uh, the Spirit falling like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire landing on people. Now, that's pretty phenomenal, right? Then you've got Peter, brave Peter this time, not cowardly Peter, standing up because God has transformed him and restored him. And he preaches, and man, people get saved. They get added to the church. It's It's phenomenal. They go around, there's a healing of a lame man. All right? Then Peter and John get arrested. They get threatened. And they don't pray to God and say, Oh Lord, please protect us from these threats. That wasn't their prayer. Their prayer was, God, take note of that and give us boldness so we can do more of what we've been doing. Man, I love that. I don't know about you, but that's some faith. So, so far, we're only four chapters in. 
And it's been a wild adventure ride in Acts already. And this morning I want to begin at the very tail end of Acts 4, okay? Before jumping into Acts 5, our main scripture. And one thing I want to note is originally, you know, there weren't chapter breaks in the Bible. All right, those are put in for our reference and our convenience. So what I'm saying is when Luke was writing this letter, there's a continuity of thought. All right, there's, there's something he's going. It's not like he just stops chapter 4 and starts a whole new subject and then Acts chapter 5, verse 1. No, there's a continuity. So let's just step back for a moment to Acts 4.32. And let's begin there. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now wait a minute. Full number. Not just 25%. Not 50 Not of super majority. But it says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things... <clears throat> excuse me that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now, first off, I just want to say, those of you familiar with economic theory and ideas, you know, distribution of wealth, capitalism versus socialism, communism, this in no way is is describing some kind of socialistic system. All right, because it's really important first to see that there was no transfer of ownership going on. No one was taking ownership from somebody and giving it to somebody else. There was no control of production or income. There was no requirement to surrender one's property to the community. All right? This was all completely voluntary. And that speaks to the Christian witness that was in effect there, that was evident, of a generous heart, of a people who has received such generosity from their Heavenly Father through their Son, Jesus Christ, that they can't help but contain themselves to be a generous people. All right, this has nothing to do, this is no way, shape, or form that, yeah, this is coming out of socialism, right? This communism here. No. It's far from it. Completely voluntary out of what God's pouring into the hearts and of His people. All right, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. How an enormous amount of grace was being poured out. Grace to see lives being transformed. Grace seeing people set free from old habits, develop new ones, lifestyles being reversed, people being transformed. There's an enormous amount of the grace of God poured out. You know, we can't do that in our own strength, you guys. We can't make stuff happen. we got to be walking and flowing in the Spirit of God and allowing God's grace to move in our midst. Because Christianity gets really dry, gets really hard, gets really uh, laborious when it's in our own strength. But when there's the grace of God moving, something special happens. Verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now look, we're not talking about a basic income here. But those who had need were getting taken care of. Laying the gifts at the apostles' feet was like saying, God, I'm giving this to you, and I know you're going to make sure it gets to the people that need it. In other words, the people understood that the things they had, money, possessions, resources, whatever, land, 
that it wasn't theirs. They had a shift in their mind that says, man, this is God's that's been given to me, and I am called to be a steward or a trustee of it. And it matters what I do with this. I don't just get to satisfy my own desires, my interests, my selfishness with it, and hoard it, and build my own empire. But God has given me this, and I want to steward it. And that's the heart of what's going on with these people. There was voluntary giving. There was power. There was great grace. There were needs being met. Verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to make a special note here, because Luke, the writer of Acts, has a way of introducing a character who's going to play a major role role later. Here, he likes to introduce them just briefly and in passing, but they'll have a major role later. And that's what he's doing here with Barnabas. His name was Joseph, but he's been given the nickname Barnabas by the apostles. Now, that's not insignificant, because a nickname was really given in a sign of respect. It wasn't a diss or, you know, a disrespect. Like sometimes today that can happen a lot more. But there was a respect given. It's kind of like when Jesus looked at Peter or Simon after he said, hey, you are the, you are the rock, the son of the living God. And he said, hey, your name's going to be Peter now. In other words, I'm going to call you Rock because I'm, that's my church is going to be built on that revelation. There was a respect. There's something good about that. And nicknames are fun, aren't they? You might have your own nickname that people gave you that has stuck with you that's been fun or whatever. Sometimes they're not that great. Sometimes they are great. I remember one time um, I was back here. I just moved to Lawrence. I was in my early 20s, and one of our friends we just met, they called me Riddle and Rick because they said, man, you, I said, man, I was never on Riddlin. She goes, man, you probably needed to be because you were so pumped up and excited. You know, I tell people that I'm naturally caffeinated. That's why I don't drink coffee because it would send me over the top. But, yeah, when I was a kid, I'm glad they didn't have Ritalin then, because they probably would have juiced me up with it. All they told my mom in first grade was, hey, lay off the sugar cereals, man. No more Cocoa Pebbles, Fruity Pebbles, check brand checks, whatever that stuff is. I thought it tasted like dog food. I couldn't believe it. But that's what calmed me down in first grade. All right, but nicknames are fun, and I, I can think of some nicknames growing up when I would watch sports. You know, there's a lot of nicknames in sports, but there was this basketball player for the Detroit Pistons Pistons in the late 80s, early 90s, when the Pistons were having their two back-to-back titles, they finally overcame the Lakers and the Celtics, and they were on the top of the world. And they had this player named Vinny the Microwave Johnson. I mean, come on, that's a great nickname, right? Now, Vinny, he was the sixth man, which means he came off the bench. He didn't start, but he got the name Microwave because he'd come in the game, and he would heat it up so fast, and he would pour points in in just a couple minutes. I mean, you're like a microwave. You're filling it up. And he was awesome. It was fun to watch Vinny the Microwave Johnson. And then a little earlier in my childhood, I was a Pittsburgh Steelers fan in the late 70s. I was probably seven, eight years old. And they had a great defense man, and, and they had this big defensive lineman. And his name was Mean Joe Green. Come on, man, Mean Joe Green. No one ever called him Joe Green. It was always Mean Joe Green. That was the whole deal when you talked to him. All right? And he was because they called him Mean because, man, he would destroy offensive linemen. He would just 
just crushed the quarterback, and he was part of that steel curtain, they called it, this defense. Well, there was this iconic advertisement that Coca-Cola did with Mean Joe Green, and I, I think I have a picture of it there, a steel frame. You'll have to imagine it with me. So Mean Joe Green is coming off the field. He's tired. He's hurt. He's, he's stumbling down the tunnel, and this little boy says, Hey, Mean Joe Green, you want a drink of my Coke? He's like, ah, no, kid. And he goes, no, really, you can have it. And Mean Joe Green turns around, looks at him, takes that Coke, and starts to drink it, and the music crescendos up. And he gulps it down in one gulp. And the kid turns to walk up the aisle, and he goes, hey, kid, catch. And he takes the jersey, and he tosses it to the kid, and the kid goes, wah, and lands in his hands. And, man, you can imagine being a kid getting your jersey of your favorite hero, right? Man, it was awesome, and the music ended, and everyone went out and bought Coca-Cola. <laughs> Off the shelves, man. It was great. So Mean Joe Green, he was a, it was a great nickname for him. But nicknames fit, and Barnabas, this nickname fit this guy named Joseph, and that's why they changed his name. He was an encourager. He was an advocate. And you'll see it later in Acts, just about what this guy was about. See, when the church, the Christians in Jerusalem, the apostles, shied away from Paul when he got saved and transformed and was coming back to Jerusalem, they were all like, whoa, 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 this guy was killing Christians not too long ago. It was Barnabas who put his arm around Paul and said, no, 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 I stand up for him. You need to let him in. God has done an amazing work. And then when Paul uh, didn't want to take Mark on his second missionary journey, it was Barnabas who took Mark under his wing. And then later on in Paul's life, guess who he took on his third missionary journey? Mark. Because Barnabas played a role in Mark's life. And then another situation, there was this church in Antioch. And the new believers were sharing their faith. And the Jerusalem Christians had a little bit of concern and wanted to send somebody. They sent Barnabas to see what was going on and make sure they were doing things well, following the Lord Jesus. And he saw the amazing grace of God in their life, saw that they were reaching out to the Gentiles and everybody in their community. And Barnabas said, man, keep on trucking, man. Stay strong and true to the Lord. So this, there was a pattern in this guy's life. This nickname fit him. Barnabas was really a hero in the telling of the book of Acts. But our intro to him begins with him giving up his property for other people. He was very much a son of encouragement. And it was said of him later in Acts 11, it says, He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Not much better thing can be said of an individual than that. So, with that backdrop, we enter into Acts 5, and remember, there's continuity, okay? There's continuity from what, what we just read. Acts 5, verse 1, but, okay, here we go. When you see the word but, there's a contrast being drawn up from what we just, the example we just saw. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so we got to see what's happening here. He brought only a part of it. Just remember that. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
you have to understand what exactly is going on here. It isn't that he sold a piece of property, kept some of it back, and gave the rest. That's not the issue here. And I find it interesting. How in the world did Peter know this? Remember, the grace of God is pouring out. The Holy Spirit is moving in their midst. The Holy Spirit speaks to Peter. How have you done this, Ananias? What have I done? It's not the issue that he only kept some back and gave the rest. Let's look at it. Verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now the issue here, the dilemma here, isn't that he didn't give all the proceeds. While under his control, he could have done whatever he wanted with it. In fact, he didn't even have to sell the land. There was no obligation or compulsion. It's that he pretended to give it all. He pretended to give it all. He's pretending to be something he's not. That's our issue here. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Wow. Great fear came upon all. Make note of that. We'll move on. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow. Okay. Wake up. Wake up call. Sapphira's story is bracketed by the same statement of that of her husband. Great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard about these events. Luke's repetition of that phrase is not by chance. It's the whole point of the story. It's the whole point of the story. The church, hear me, the church is God's holy people. It's His holy body. It's the realm of the Spirit of God. And by the power of this spiritual presence in its midst, this young community worked miracles, witnessed fearlessly, and were blessed with incredible growth. The Spirit was the power behind its unity, and the, power, the unity was the power behind its witness. That was going on in the early church in Acts. But just as with God there's both justice and mercy, so with His Spirit there's also an underside to the blessing. This is the judgment. This is Ananias and Sapphira's experience. What is it saying here? The Spirit is not to be dealt with lightly. 
And the Spirit of God must always be viewed in fear, in the best sense of the word and what that means. A holy fear of God. It means reverent awe and respect. An awe of God. A wow, man, you are amazing and you are uh, incredibly powerful and there's a respect and an awe that you deserve. It might be noted that this is the first time in Acts that the word church is used. And it's not by coincidence. That word is ecclesia, called out ones for a purpose, set apart, the divine community, a city set on a hill, a light, a beacon for all to see and to say, wow, look at the God of those people. Look at how those people live. Look at who they are. Look at what they emanate out of themselves. Look how their their unity, look at what God's doing in their midst. It's not by accident that this is the first time ecclesia is used. The church can only thrive as the people of God if it lives within the total trust of all of its members. And hear me on this. Where there is the unity of trust, that oneness of heart and mind, the church flourishes in the power of the Spirit. I'm just going to say that again. Where there is unity of trust, that oneness of heart and mind, the church flourishes in the power of the Spirit. Turn to your neighbor and say, unity is big. It's really big. Ananias and Sapphira, what was happening? There was a violation of trust. There was a violation of integrity. There was a lack of it. And God was going to make a statement that He is not one to be trifled with. That He's not one to be played games with. Because where there's duplicity, distrust, hypocrisy, the church's witness fails. And that is unequivocal. God is not going to budge on that. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Wow, that's just interesting. None of the rest. The rest are not the people in the church. They're the bystanders. They're the community out there in, in, you know, in Jerusalem looking around. They're the people going, whoa, there's some stuff going on here. No one else dared join them, but they held them in high esteem. Well, let's talk about that. Because there's a paradox here. There's the power and blessing and the righteous judgment held together. Luke is communicating this incredible paradox that we don't really understand that well in our Western American Christianity, in our American churchianity, whatever you want to call it. We don't tend to understand this paradox very well that was demonstrated. The two-sidedness of God's Spirit's power. There's a two-sidedness. The power and blessing. And also the righteous judgment. Everybody wants the power and blessing. But the righteous standard? The power of miracles, it attracts. It's like a magnet. Everyone wants to be a part of that. But the awesome power of the Spirit also has the other side. And that's the judging. It also demands commitment and responsibility. We love the miracles, 
We love the awe. We love the flash. But do we equally love the commitment and the responsibility that comes with it? The people in Jerusalem, any pretenders out there, they were cautious to step in because they knew, hey, we've seen the miracles. We're not even part of the church, but we're seeing all these things God's doing among His people. And we understood that, man, we better not go in there pretending because if we do, we may not come out alive. We may not survive it. Even those who weren't following Jesus were recognizing this. Because there's something bigger going on than just a, peop, a group of people gathering for a meeting or a church. There was something bigger going on. There was a dynamic the Spirit of God was creating among His people as He was birthing the church that you can't manipulate, you can't control, you can't sneak in and out, you can't trick it because God is in the midst of those people and He's not to be messed with. He's going to have His way. God's going to have His way. And until you want to have Him have His way in your life, you best on stay about your business. And the people around Jerusalem were figuring that out. They were attracted, but they understood there was a holiness. There's this paradox. And in the world of marketing and promotion and advertising, you know, where it's, hey, what are your needs? What are your felt needs? What do you think? Whatever your needs are, hey, this is like, this doesn't sound like a good growth strategy. I don't know about you, but this didn't drop out of a marketing firm in New York for the early church. That's the way to have a small church. This is repeated, though, throughout history. And hear me on this. Churches that compromise with the biblical standard eventually dissolve and end. Throughout history. That's been the case. It's those, who, it's those who want and desperately desire God to have His way in their midst that flourish. And God, no, He's not judging their imperfections. He's not looking for you to make a wrong turn or mess up. That's not what God's looking at. He's not saying, hey man, you didn't sell that property for enough. You should have asked a better price. Shame on you. He's not doing that. No, it has everything to do about pretending about lying, about who they are and what they had done. That was what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira. They could have done whatever they wanted, but they put forth that they had done it all and given it all, like Barnabas and like others. They were pretending for accolades, look at us, we're a part of this, whatever it was. And God was like, I'm not going to have that. That's not full of integrity. And I don't want to have that in the midst of what I'm trying to establish here. That's violating my spirit in the midst of the congregation. You'd think that would shrink the size of the young church, right? No. It's not what happened. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers, those giving over their believing loyalty to Jesus, were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. The people, here we go, those people, gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, 
bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The amazing paradox. Instead of shrinking, they kept growing. More signs and wonders. More of the Spirit's presence. More unity. More integrity. More authenticity was coming. And this is only Acts chapter 5 where this story gets placed. And that is, no, that is by no coincidence by Luke. God is making a point here. In the early startup of the church, God's plan for, for the restoration of His kingdom on the earth, the church, He puts this very sobering wake-up call right there at the beginning to help us understand how important this is, that it's foundational, it's fundamental to the understanding that God wants for us, that if we want the power of the Spirit, we have to commit to integrity as well. Two sides of the same Spirit. And I believe this is a day, this is is an hour for us as God's people to be empowered by something way beyond ourselves and to be all that He's called us to be. And to cherish and guard the unity and the integrity among one another. Because God cares about His church, His ecclesia, His called out ones. Those who are, we're a city set on a hill. We are to be a shining example to the world. That they are attracted to not only the Spirit's movement in us, but to the relational dynamic. To the authenticity that is so important in the body of Christ. Being who you are and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you. And allowing people to see that. That our hearts and minds and our lives are being transformed by God's power. It's the pretending that will kill us. It's the pretending that's the end of it. God sees. God knows. And He calls us to live as human beings together in a beautiful way. With, with relationships that are, that are open and transparent, that, that we care for one another, that we encourage one another into all the goodness and the faith and all that God has. That's what it is to be the church. And I believe God wants to move in Bluemont. God wants to move at Morningstar and Lawrence and Community Church in Topeka and City Life in Kansas City and in our Call to Greatness campus ministry. And He's looking for a people who will take both sides of His power, the miracles and the blessing and the authenticity, integrity, and commitment. That is a beautiful combination that God wants in His people. I want to pray for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, I thank You that Lord, this is your word. It's right here before us. God, there's nothing more to add. But in our hearts, Lord, we must choose. We must choose. Will we let our heart, God, prevail over your truth? Or will we let the truth of your word prevail over our hearts? God, I pray that each and every one of us in this room would allow your scripture, your word, to prevail. to to conform our thoughts and our mind and the way we live into the way you call us to in your word. Because God, your way is true. Your way is right. Your way is perfect. Your way is full of blessing and abundance and flourishing, not only for us individually, but God, for your people. 
and for all those hurting and broken people that we are, you want us, you want to use us to reach. But Father, I pray, God, you would take preeminence. You deserve preeminence in your body, in your ecclesia. You're the supreme one. You're the standard bearer. So Lord, prevail over our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.